Listen. Just listen. I'm Ozzy Totten, and you're listening to a Second Story podcast. Second Story is a hybrid performance series, a collaboration among writers, performers, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And now, Second Story storyteller Jessica Palmer. Prelude to making out, my boyfriend removes the retainer from his mouth and sets it down on the bench next to him. God, that's sexy. (laughs) Later, in an act of undying devotion, I return to the soccer field where we'd been making out to retrieve it. It's dark out, but the light of my love leads me to it. I spot the small pink dome resting on the bench. I pick the thing up. It's like touching the inside of a plastic smile. I carefully put it in my pocket and walk back to my dorm room. This is something of a second chance high school, a boarding school, and some kids are here on purpose, but a lot of us ended up here either because we dropped out, were expelled from other schools, or couldn't get into college with the grades we had. This is a home for wayward misfits, and we live in dorms alongside faculty. We eat meals together. We know almost intuitively when a classmate is in trouble the instant it happens, when someone's been suspended or expelled, who's dating, who got pregnant, and who's doing drugs. I'm here at my own request. My mother and I had moved to live near the widower she was engaged to marry. They had in common a love of good scotch, a shared workplace, and not much else. (laughs) By the end of the school year, the wedding was called off, and the thought of spending another year at my current school was intolerable. I had already spent a year slogging through a dark depression, living out the consequences of my mother's actions. I asked her to send me away to boarding school. For my birthday, my boyfriend paints a rose on a canvas that he stretched himself Not a rose in bloom, but one that's still closed in on itself, attached to a long, thorny stem. Our union is unlikely. I happened to mention to him, to my roommate, Lexia, that I thought he was cute. She went and told him, and the next thing I knew, he was sitting across from me in the dining hall where I refused to speak to him. For a week, I blatantly ignored him as we crossed paths on the tiny campus, but he persisted in seeking me out. Why won't you date him, Alexia asked. It's the principle of the thing that bothered me. I told her something in confidence, and then she went and shared it. I vowed to never tell Alexia anything again, ever. Besides, I had a strict policy to only like boys who didn't like me. My sophomore year, there was Andrew. He was really sweet, tolerated my attentions with stoicism, and was totally uninterested. He signed my yearbook with, I'm sorry that not everything turned out the way you wanted it to. (laughs) After he graduated, 
I moved on to Sam, who was on the cross-country team with me and actively disliked me, but that only stoked the flames of my desire. <laughs> I didn't like being pursued, and I wasn't very graceful about rejecting my suitors. The year before, I had flat-out refused to date a very nice boy named Fred, who had transferred in his senior year. Without a hint of nuance or sugarcoating, I said, I can't go out with you. So, it should come as no surprise that after a week of stonewalling this boy, I write him a note literally daring him to date me. He responds in one word, yes. To save face, I have to transform my hostility into feelings of endearment and affection. It takes a week before I let him hold my hand. But after that one gesture, I find it surprisingly easy to fall completely and totally in love. He tells me that he'd admired me from afar, imagining himself to be Charlie Brown and casting me in the role of the little red-haired girl. <laughs> he writes me poems, cooks meals for me, and we spend hours on the phone when we're apart. After I graduate high school, I ditch my plan to work at the summer camp where I'd spent seven summers and take a desk job in the city so that I can continue to see him on weekends. In his home, for the first time since my parents' divorce eight years earlier, I sit at the table and eat with an entire family and am included in family functions and outings. I spend the 4th of July with the Gunthers. His parents take me into their home every other weekend put me up in the rec room and treat me like I am one of their own. His little sister, Linda Brooke, adores me. And on Saturdays, if he's working, we hang out and play with the litter of kittens that were born in the backyard that spring. I feel as though I've stepped into a dream life. I've seen families that behave like this, family friends who know what their children are studying, who they're dating, what their struggles are, but it's not something I've experienced firsthand. At my house, I do things on my own. I cook frozen or boil in bag dinners. My anorexic sister has long since moved out on her own. My autistic father lives in another country and my alcoholic mother is never around. At the end of the summer, I move away to college in another state and we break up. The distance is too much for him. I am devastated. As far as I'm concerned, he is my one great love and I will never meet another boy like him. The distance between my college and his hometown is not, however, too much for me to keep in touch with his family. I send his mother, Anne, letters from college. She hears more about my day-to-day -day life than my own parents, and she writes me back. I find her letters in my college P.O. box and wait until I'm back in my dorm room to read them. She documents the goings-on of the household, tells me when her pet bird dies and when Linda Brooks starts high school. When I discover my love of photography, I send her black and white prints that I develop in the college darkroom. And when I move to Chicago and discover the reader, I clip the Life in Hell cartoons and mail them to Linda Brooke. Over time, the correspondence slows, but it never quite stops. I see him from time to time, not often. He goes to college and majors in agricultural science and gets really into organic farming. The last time I saw him, he told me about a woman he thought he was in love with, and I told him about the man I had just started dating who, years later, 
became my husband. The last time I spoke to Anne was right after I'd gotten married and bought a house. We hadn't spoken in a while, and a lot had happened that year. The fact that I chose to call her instead of my own mother speaks for itself. I called her from the kitchen, where the western light comes in through the windows and stays all afternoon. The full-sized refrigerator and ample counter space were a novelty coming from our cramped four-room apartment, and I'd taken to dawdling in the kitchen more than any other room. I excitedly filled her in on the details, the wedding, the house, our new life together as a married couple. There was something different in her voice. After I'd updated her on my life, she said, wow, you really are one of those people who just stay in touch. She'd been going through some papers and had found all the letters I'd sent to her over the years. She said she was going to mail them back to me. Why would you want to do that, I asked. Oh, you know, this way you get to read them and see who you were back then. In my experience, sending back all the letters someone has ever sent to you is something you do when you break up with them. Is that what she was doing? Ann Gunther was breaking up with me. <laughs> a few days later, I received a package from her. I opened it, read one line, and stopped. It was embarrassing. The only good thing about having it was that nobody else could read it now. I stuffed the envelope in a drawer and never looked at it again. Why did she send them back to me? Why had she kept them for so long? Was she letting go of me because she knew that I was safe to let go of now that I had a husband and a house of my own? Or was she just tired of hearing from her son's high school sweetheart? I'm not sure, but I searched for the answers to those questions in the bottom of a pint of Ben & Jerry's and a marathon viewing of early Woody Allen films. <laughs> Last fall, as I sat in my cubicle at my recession job, the one I got after I was laid off from my real job, I was surfing Facebook when I came across an NPR story about a New York journalist who traveled to Pennsylvania to interview a young farmer at a CSA, fell in love with him, married him, started an organic farm with him on the New York-Vermont border, and had written a memoir about their first year running the farm. I didn't need to read the rest of the story to figure out that the young farmer she was referring to was my boyfriend. Like the magic that had led me to his missing retainer, I just knew. <laughs> Something happened to me as I sat in my cubicle. A small explosion that started at the base of my neck and radiated out and down through my extremities. By the time I got home to my loving husband, I could no longer form coherent sentences. That bitch stole my boyfriend, I blurted. <laughs> oh, and what am I, he asked after I'd managed to explain myself. Yeah, yeah, you're great, I love you, whatever. The point is, that bitch stole my boyfriend. You would not want to be a farmer's wife, he argued. I offered as counterpoint, you don't know. <laughs> In the following weeks, I read every interview of my boyfriend's wife that I could get my hands on, <laughs> listened to audio tracks of her on NPR, and watched videos of her speaking. I even tracked down a couple photos of my boyfriend online to confirm what I already knew. And because my brain is a jukebox of songs that were recorded between 1980 and 1990, 
Prince's When You Were Mine got stuck in my head. Even though the lyrics in no way describe our relationship. It's not just that he was the first boy who loved me. His was the first family that made me feel like I was worth something. I'm a grown woman, and this past June, my husband and I celebrated 10 years of marriage. But there's a part of me that just can't let go of the idea that he must still love me. I mean, how could he have ever stopped? I'm his little red-haired girl. I doubt that I will see him or his family anytime soon. It would probably be weird anyway, what with having a past with both him and his mother. But if he was to walk into this room right now, all I would really want to say to him would be thanks. Thanks for putting up with all my crap. Thanks for breaking through my ridiculous, self-defeating barriers. Thanks for growing up to be a good man who does good things in the world. Thanks for having such a cool family. Except for that one time when your mom broke up with me. <laughs> That was whack. <laughs> but mostly, thanks for taking out your retainer. Not every guy would do that. <laughs> That was Jessica Palmer. If her story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Please join us on March 11th and 12th for our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar in Logan Square, or on March 18th at Buddy Guy's Legends. Second Story Podcast is brought to you by Amanda Dalheimer, Megan Steelstra, Bobby Budrisky, Sherry Pentamone, Mikhail Fixel, Nick Kawahara, Ozzy Totten, and Eric Hazen. Second Story is funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, City Arts Grants, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts Works Fund, and generous support from our fans. For more information about Second Story, including a full list of our upcoming performances, information on becoming involved with Second Story, or to make a donation, please visit us on our website at secondstory.com. I'm Ozzie Totten, and thanks for listening.